This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I'm Morris Reardon, editor of the Poetry Review. And this afternoon I'm talking to Frank Ormsby. We're at uh, the Scottish Poetry Library in Edinburgh. Frank, thank you for coming along. Frank belongs to that uh, extraordinary efflorescence of Northern Irish poetry that began in the late 60s and indeed continues to this day for many years as editor of the Honest Ulsterman anthologies as well. Frank would have been one of the energising forces behind that whole time. I begin actually by asking you a little bit about that. Uh, it's almost legendary now, you know, going back to the time when you had... Well, you arrived, I guess, in Belfast about 1967, is that correct? 1966, which, 66, which yeah. was an even better year in a way because um, it was the year that Heaney published Death of a Naturalist, and I suppose that was one of the books that uh, directed me towards my own kind of rural experience in County Fermanagh. You know, it, it reinforced what I was already sensing, I suppose, from the work of Joan Montague and Patrick Kavanagh, you know, about what an important subject I had in my own backyard, so to speak. And of course, I actually had Heaney as a tutor and a lecturer uh, at Queen's and he, he, he sort of drafted me into his writers group uh, as well. So it was terrifically, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the year 1969 because of all of these things, you know. Yes. Uh, uh, I also became editor of the Honest Austin mm-hmm. in that particular year. It's an exciting time to, when I look back on it now, you know, I mean, I suppose we took it for, for granted at the time, but you would go to the Eglinton, and of course, as usual, with these kind of literary things, there's a pub somewhere in the background, or a couple of pubs, you know. And uh, it was the Eglinton in the Botanic Inn and the Wellington Park Hotel in, in, in Belfast. Michael Longley refers to these as the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> and right enough, when I think back on it, you know, it, um, we were in there so often that uh, I'm amazed we got anything written at all. But it was wonderfully. Casual. I mean, I used to go to the Eglinton then on my way home from teaching at Inst. In no time at all, you know, Kieran Carson and Derby Carson would come in from the Arts Council, for example. Muldoon would show up from the BBC. Ted Hickey and others who were working in the Ulster Museum nearby would turn up. And it was an amazing kind of collection of people there, especially on a Friday afternoon. Did you have a sense that there was something extraordinary happening at the time, or is that more well, retrospect? Well, I, I, I think if you're involved in, in something like that, you, you probably exaggerate its importance, you know, you, you probably have a sense that there's more happening than there actually is, you know. Um, but at the same time, there's no incentive and there's no inspiration like discussing writers or being pointed in the direction of writers by by your f- friends who, who have enjoyed you know I can I can remember Kieran Carson bringing particular books along yes. uh, or new poems sometimes I came away from the Eglantine in with you know about 10 pages of the next honest Osterman in my pocket it was a, it was a wonderfully informal that was an easy way to edit a magazine if I may say absolutely <laughs> That was part of the excitement of it all. Mm. Although I, I think probably with the with the honest Osterman, I mean I suppose I was half conscious of this really, 
that, in a sense, it wasn't just an Irish literary magazine. I mean, more than most, I think I'm right in saying that more than most Irish magazines, its pages were open to poets from England, Scotland, Wales. Well, if I think of the, the voice of the Honest Osterman, you know, I certainly I think of people like Muldoon and Kieran Carson and James Simmons and so on. But I also think of somebody like Gavin Ewart. I mean, when I look back on those earlier issues of, of when I look back on the general run of, of the magazine, it's one of the still pleasing things about it, you know, that, uh, you know, you'll find your poems by Craig Rain and Andy yeah. Ocean and R.S. Thomas and Tom Tony Arts. So it was so an outward-looking magazine, wasn't it? So. And it became a kind of a magnet of the Belfast itself. It became a magnet for poetry in these islands, really. I well, think. Um, mm -hmm. again, I would say I was only partly aware of that at the time. Yeah. Later on, when you go up into your attic and you start looking through the, you know, the correspondence and the... Mm -hmm. And the stuff that was sent to you at particular times by people who, whose names were not known at all at the time, but but are known now. But very often more as novelists and playwrights and poets. But you know, they were sending poems to the honest that <laughs> turned down in the seventies and the eighties. Colin Tobin, for example. Indeed, yes, yeah. You turned them down. Well, I can remember him sending me poems from Barcelona. Oh, very good. Um, yeah. And I mean, he wasn't a name at all at mm. the point. On the one occasion that I met him, I told him about this, and he, he was quite interested in it. And he said, "But uh, at least he said you wrote me a letter, not like that bastard." And then he never. <laughs> <laughs> not me, not me, Frank. <laughs> no, I didn't know about uh, Tobin's interest. Well, I knew about his interest in poetry. Yes. But I didn't know he perpetrated it. <laughs> I want to take you back for a moment to you know the earlier phase in your life, that very kind of rural background which you share with other poets like Montague and yes. and Heaney and so on. But uh, I think it probably was it was quite quite distinctive, was it? Uh, well, I'm not sure how how distinctive it was. Um, when I read poems by, we'll say, Montague or Kavanaugh or Heaney, mm -hmm. I recognise a lot of my own experience uh, in them. My mother and father both left school when they were 11 years old. My father to work as a farm labourer. Mm -hmm. My mother essentially to work also as a farm labourer because her brother worked on a local estate and she was kind of left to help uh, her parents. I mean, I remember her as someone who built hay and cut turf and chopped sticks mm -hmm. and did all that sort of thing, mm -hmm. just as a matter of course, you know. And this is in County Fermanagh, a from very Manor. beautiful part of, of Northern Yes, Manor. yes, I don't, I don't think I really appreciated mm -hmm. Fermanagh until I left it and I came to live in Queens, but it's certainly one of the most beautiful provincial areas in the North. Mm -hmm. Your, your your work, well, I suppose the first book is uh, A Store of Candles. Yes. That's a phrase from Under the Stairs. Actually, it's it's a short, very beautiful poem that I've been fond of for years. I'm going to read it, actually. Look in the dark alcove under the stairs, a paintbrush steeped in turpentine, its hair softening for use, rat poison in a jar, bent spoons for prizing lids, a spare farm bar, 
the shaft of a broom, a tire, a sort of nails, a store of candles for when the light fails. It's a very tidy poem, isn't well, it? Well, I suppose you know, in one way you could say that the last line makes big claims for poetry, but I hope it does, does that in a kind of a modest language, which, I mean, I suppose in, in an odd sort of way that turns it into a troubles yeah, poem, you know, yeah. it's a, Something again, yeah, from yeah. when the light fails, yes, as indeed yes. it was it was doing at the time. Yes, and yeah. uh, so that's a very kind of restrained aesthetic. Yes, I suppose yeah. John Hewitt might have been behind it to some extent. Yes, yes. but it's sort of almost the Protestant virtues that you <laughs> <laughs> that you notice about it. It's very funny you should say that, you know, because um, I, I remember um, a writer called Victor Price. A novelist when he came to meet me and James Simmons in the Wellington Park. And sometime afterwards he said to me, he said, you know, you've completely turned the stereotypes upside down. You know, I discovered that the Protestant James Simmons is a white man, you know, and that, that the Catholic Frank Ormsby is actually very quiet and restrained. <laughs> and the other thing is that for years I've had people assume that I'm Protestant because of my name. Of course, you yeah. Know, it, it, it could easily be a Protestant oh, yes, name, yes. yes. Yeah. Whereas uh, my friend, who, somebody who taught with me for years at Inst, called Connor Macaulay. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the Protestant. <laughs> he was a Catholic, yes. Mm. It's, uh, I don't know whether I would say that my poetry generally is, I suppose it is actually quite restrained in learning. It's not very flamboyant or extravagant. It is more in the line of poets like John Hewitt, as you say. Well, it is restrained, but it sometimes feels like it needs to be restrained. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. There's a kind of attention, a kind of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe, maybe we'll come back to that, but maybe that's something that's well, become more... Yeah. That the restraint is wearing off, as it were, maybe. Again, it's strange how people say things in an interview and, and they spark off memories and so on. Um, you're making me think of a, a review of A Store of Candles by Sean O'Brien. Oh, yes. In a, in a magazine called, I think, The Stone Ferry Review. And there was one point where he exclaims in the review, for Christ's sake, loosen this collar, it's killing me. <laughs> Which was one of the funnier comments about the kind of restraint, presumably, or maybe he was presumably saying that uh, it was restrained to the point where, you know, things were being strangled in these poems. I perhaps needed to open up and loosen up. And yeah, although I think that gives them their kind of tension to, you know. Well, so. I hope that that's right. Yeah. And, uh, I know that uh, when the when Patrick Crotty's Penguin Book of Contemporary Irish Poetry was launched in Dublin, the two sort of central figures were Heaney and Longley. And uh, one of the things they were asked to do was, in addition to reading a poem for their own, they had to read a poem by somebody else in the anthology. And Heaney read a poem of mine called The Gate. Um, gate in the middle of yes, the field, yes, yes. And um, Longley asked him afterwards why he'd chosen that poem, and he apparently said, oh, because it just it represented Frank going 
Bob Marley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I would have thought that's actually one of your gifts. I mean, this particular poem, it's got a gate in the middle of the field, mm -hmm. which of course is pointless mm -hmm. and surreal. Mm -hmm. So you've got an eye for that kind of strange manifestation of the ordinary, I well, think. Yeah. Just one other thing that strikes me about your, well, it's your second book, A Northern Spring, yes. which kind of gives voices to the American soldiers yes. um, in Northern Ireland who would be going to fight in the war and so on. Uh, so that, that's kind of interesting because you're, you're dipping back into before your life, as yes. your yes. father's yes. time. Or I suppose that the, the thing about that was that um, during the war, there had been an American hospital camp on the estate, very close mm -hmm. to where uh, we live. When I was growing up, the remains of that camp were part of our playground. You know, there were a couple of air raid shelters. Mm -hmm. the, the stone floors of the huts were still there. Old rusted beer cans lying mm -hmm. around and so on. So I was very, very aware mm -hmm. of, of this. And also, of course, the stories that people told about the Yanks, of course, are referred to. Yes. I mean, they seem to have related to the Catholic nationalist community mm. far more than they did to anybody else. So, you know, the, you mean uh, the, yeah. the non-Catholic <laughs> community? Well, they, they, I suppose, related to the British soldiers and I mm. don't know the Polish and the Belgian and the others. Mm. An amazing sort of a range of nationalities mm. you know, waiting to I suppose all of that had been washing around in my head for, for years and one of the literary influences was uh, Edgar Lee Masters, The oh, Spin yes. River Anthology, you know, where the, the voices of the dead speak up and, and you know, it builds up a, the poems build up a sort of sense of a, a community. It's a book length poem that I've always been very fond of. Yeah. I suppose the other thing is that I love the dramatic uh, monologue mm. form and very often when I haven't used it for a long time and come back to it, I can feel myself lighting up. I think it's, it's kind of a liberating well, to have a other voice. It's a healthy thing for mm. a uh, kind of challenge for a poet to, to take up, I think. You know, and, um, well, it's a sequence, of course, that explores, it's very exploratory actually because it's exploratory of American culture, yes. Also, obviously, of warfare and so on. Yes, and um, I mean, I suppose at the time, at the time it was written, you had various propaganda machines in operation in the north, which referred to, well, soldiers and police in particular as legitimate targets, mm -hmm. and in a way, that that whole sequence is anti the propagandist line that sort of. Uh, you know, sets people up as legitimate targets. Yeah. I think there is a strong sense of your poems generally and also very much that sequence resonating within, you know, all of this is taking place against the background of yes. the troubles as, as we refer to them. And then the personal life is lived in relation to that and that, yes. that's something that's uh, very present in, yeah. in, in some of your poems too. Yes. Yes. When your, I guess your first child was conceived and gestated and yes, being born, yes. poems like the heart yeah. and the Easter ceasefire. Yeah, yes, that's, uh, 
Well, that sequence was written because I was an expectant father after 24 years. I mean, I had, had two older, grown-up children from my mm. first marriage. Yes. So it was partly that, but also at the time it was, at the time it was written was a particularly violent time in the north, leading towards the first kind of rumours of peace. So I suppose that, that particular sequence it's strongly personal, but it kind of approaches the public sphere as well. It does indeed. Uh, yeah. Some of the ones mm. you've mentioned, for example. Mm. And generally, your poems resonate within that context, but it's kind of interesting how they are intertwined, particularly in those poems. There is an interest in, in America. I mean, we, we mentioned the American soldiers yes. and so on, yes. but quite a lot of poems that are Americana poems, well, as it were. Where does that, all that come from? Is there a kind of personal background to that? Or? My sister-in-law married an American. They live in upstate New York. And for years, we went out to see them during the summer, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. I mean, I would hesitate to say that I got to know that area of upstate New York because of <laughs> New York is such a vast place, you know. They lived on the outskirts of a sort of a hamlet called Valhalla. Great. Yeah, yeah. terrific name. Mm -hmm. it, it's surrounded by cemeteries. Dating, I suppose, from a time when the city was running out of burial grounds, you know, and uh, where it was buying up land, a short train journey from the city. So there are a number of huge cemeteries. So I suppose that's the sort of personal background, you know, that uh, I tend to respond very much to place, you know, whatever place it, you know, I find myself uh, in. I suppose in literary terms, I've always loved American poetry. I think that the importance of the kind of paperback revolution probably yeah. can't be exaggerated when it comes to, you know, when you, you sort of think that you almost edu educated yourself from the Penguin modern poets, for example, uh, Penguin modern European poets, mm. but then also a number of anthologies edited by people like Donald Hall and so on, which coupled with studying certain American poets at Queens with Michael Allen as mm. a tutor. All of these things went into the mix. The longevity of American poets is a wonderful thing, I know. Well, you're right. The longevity is a wonderful thing for anybody. But yeah, you, you, you celebrate the, the senior figures, yes, don't you? That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, one sort of thing that actually spans your work is our poems about your father. Yes. I mean, you've come so, around to writing strangely, really. I thought, yes. you know, poems about his well, illness and yes. his funeral. So every, there are poems about my father in uh, mm -hmm. every one of my books, uh, including the next one. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And, um, and does well, he kind of live in your dream life or your memory life? I'm or? very hard pushed to define how mm -hmm. he. He was an old-ish man when I was born, he would have been in his late 60s when I was born. Yes. So my memories are almost entirely of, a, of an old man. He had a stroke which more or less deprived him of uh, speech and eventually, I suppose, uh, killed him. So I always was aware of this kind of invalid figure hmm. about the house, you know. I seem to have quite a vivid sense of 
his interests and so on. You know, he loved horse racing and betting on horses, for example. Yeah. He loved Gaelic football. I remember um, when he died, the obituary in the local paper described him as an enthusiastic Gael. <laughs> so I always thought it was a great uh, description of him, you know. Yeah. Um, and being an enthusiastic Gael involved things like fighting at football matches, you know. <laughs> I can remember. I can so remember. is he a kind of an alter ego for you in some well, sense? Are you implying that I fight at football? <laughs> or is there this uh, Gael sort of. I suppose so, yes. Living inside you. Uh, maybe so, yes. Mm -hmm. and, um, and sometimes, I mean, I suppose this is a very sentimental thing to say. Mm -hmm. So what? I was sometimes sorry he died before certain, before Don won the All Ireland, for well, example. He did, did he? Who was the first, yeah. mm -hmm. first Northern team to. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or I think of Danny McElhinden from Newry winning. Um, Knocking out somebody like Jack Bodell and winning mm -hmm. the um, the British heavyweight title, you know, with his eyes closed, <laughs> you know, he sort of closed his eyes and came out of his corner with the arms rotating like a wheel, you know, and he connected with Bodell's big chin, and that was the end of that, you know. And uh, sometimes I, I imagine the pleasure my father would have taken, you know. In that kind of heroic absolute sport. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, about him was that uh, the first time we had a wireless, a radio in the house, it was a kind of welfare wireless which was available to people who were ailing or you know had, had strokes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And of course, he, he loved listening to the, the football, Gaelic football on a Sunday. We spent our time trying to listen to Radio Luxembourg, <laughs> but he wasn't having any of it, you know. Um, his favourites were Eileen Donaghy and Brady Gallagher and Brendan O'Dowda, you know. Very good, yes. And uh, it was only after he'd gone to bed that we were able to turn over to Elvis and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him saying, that boy can sing no and that boy was Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Now, I, I, I understand you're writing quite a lot of poems in, well, in recent times, or quite yes. a few of them in, in the latest uh, copy of the Poetry Review. I was never very prolific. Uh, I mean, it took me usually about nine years to put a book together, mm -hmm. and uh, then it was 14 years, in fact, in the case of Fireflies. I always thought that it had something to do with being a teacher by profession, mm -hmm. with the way in which teacher teaching absorbed your energies. You, you hadn't anything left to give to poetry. And a couple of years ago, I, I embarked on a, a set of poems. I was in a situation where I was actually very often writing a poem a day. Oh, now, really? This is mm -hmm. I mean, completely unknown as far as I'm concerned. I was highly suspicious of it, and I'm still highly suspicious of it. Yeah. But at the same time, there was a mad excitement yeah. about it, you know. Yeah. That, um, I don't know whether, I've been retired now for five years, I don't know whether this was a belated mm. release mm. or something. My wife says half-jokingly that it's to do with medication. I mean, this is the kind of Jeffrey Hill effect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a very sort of restrained, slow-producing poet, and then 
he suddenly became a very prolific one. Yes, yes. And I think he did ascribe it to medication that in his case yeah. he was taking for, um, for depression, I think. Yeah. You, you, you want to fill me in maybe well, a little bit more about your own medication? Well, it's, uh, in recent years I've been diagnosed as being diabetic, mm -hmm. like, like my father in fact, mm -hmm. and also as having uh, Parkinson's disease, the sort of mm -hmm. early stages of whatever that means, of uh, Parkinson's disease. Some of the medication for the Parkinson's as a side effect has obsessiveness and another side effect, hallucinations. Oh, yeah. And, uh, visions and other visions, visions. yeah. Not, not full-blown Thomas De Quincey kind of uh, visions, yeah. but uh, it's more like um, you know, when you were a child and you woke up in a dark bedroom and there was a, you know, a bathrobe hanging on the back of the door and for a moment it looked like a, a monk or a cowed figure away. You know, it's more like, yeah. I, mean, I, I often have a very strong sense that there's somebody at my shoulder oh, yes. or that there's somebody has just disappeared around the corner. Mm. And I mean, it's quite strong. Mm. There, there have been occasions when I've been in the house by myself at night and I've had a sense that the, the room that I was in was crowded. Mm -hmm. And it's not threatening or menacing in any sort of way. You know, it's a, uh, once or twice I've, uh, in a you know a, a moment of forgetfulness, I find myself speaking to them. Indeed, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember sort of falling asleep and waking up and addressing the whatever it was in the chair sitting next to me yeah. and asking what their holiday plans were. Oh, very good. And calling yeah. them by my, my mother-in-law's name. Yeah. But I think the lesson in this is not to give medication to poets. <laughs> but these new poems, um, they're full of mischief. Spoke. There is a kind of Yeah, more extravagant, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you might, you might treat us to one of those, Frank. Yes. yes. This one begins with a, an epigraph from a critic. And the epigraph says, I never want to read another poem by an Irish poet in which his grandfather enters or emerges from a shed. It's called Grandfather's Week. On Monday, Grandfather visits his shed at least twice. He carries what looks like blackout curtains, a sizable chandelier and a case of Bud Light. On Tuesday, he is a one-man stream of traffic into the shed go maps of all the oceans, a telescope, numerous buckets of black earth, and a crate of Guinness. On Wednesday, he tips ten wheelbarrows of cut grass in a corner of the shed, fits in a small tree with fruit on the branches, and six bottles of fruity Australian red. Surely no reason for more. But on Thursday, the shed roof creaks open like a convertible's to make room for huge replicas of sun and moon and an array of cocktails with parasols. Imagine the chaos on Friday when he coaxes a garden full of wild beasts and creeping things into a shed that seems to expand invisibly when he clicks his fingers. So much dark rum, so much cider to pack on Saturday, he fetches a man and woman to complete the task and take up residence in the shed. Their work finished, on Sunday, they drink all day. <laughs> well, as I said, full of mischief. Thank you, Frank Ormsby. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. 
To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.